Let's open the Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. The last section of this book of Isaiah had to do with Hezekiah. And we said it was a kind of a parenthesis in the middle of the book. The few chapters that we had there about Hezekiah. And then the 40th chapter from 40 through 66. Some think that it was by another author. Another Isaiah. And yet, I find that uh, the Bible attributes a whole book to, to Isaiah, including that center section about Hezekiah. And uh, even though it was about Hezekiah, it was Isaiah the prophet. And the first part of the book has to do with many judgments. And they say the reason that they think that chapters 40 through 66 was another uh, unknown Isaiah because of the style and the difference in the writing and how much it's related to comfort and peace and uh, mostly the opposite of what you find in the first uh, part of the book. But I think that the Scripture has ample uh, evidence as to the authorship of the, the whole book. And in the New Testament, we'll find a lot of evidence that it is Isaiah the prophet and one and only, the one and only, instead of an unknown. Uh, it's clear testimony of the prophets and the apostles and the inspired writers of the New Testament and even John the Baptist that Isaiah is the author of the whole book. I'd like to give you just a few verses of evidence for that and then we'll get into the meat of the message in the 40th chapter. But uh, if you look in Luke chapter 4 verses 17 through 21, Luke's gospel, the fourth chapter, it says in verse 17, Luke says, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. He doesn't say the second Isaiah, does he? Or anything about there being a doubt about it. There was delivered, and this was to Jesus, the book of the prophet Esaias. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now then, this is Jesus. Is this first message that he uh, preached. And he refers... In Luke refers this to the book of the prophet Isaiah, and it's taken from the 61st chapter of Isaiah. So we know it's the section that we're dealing with that is spoken of the prophet Isaiah. It doesn't say some unknown named person, but the prophet Isaiah. Give you further evidence, Matthew 8 verse 17 if you care to look there, Matthew 8 and verse 17, it says this, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Esaias, the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now then, here the reference is to Isaiah chapter 53, and it's in reference to Jesus healing the sick. It says in verse 16, when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out uh, the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. That it might be fulfilled as spoken by uh, Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. And that has to do with the 53rd chapter. So again, Matthew tells us that it is the book of Isaiah. John chapter 12, and we give you verses 37 through 41. 
It says in verse 37, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Esaias the prophet might be fulfilled. Now listen carefully. Which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom is, uh, hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the way Isaiah 53 starts out. Again, this second section of the book of Isaiah. Of this last section of the book of Isaiah. Therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, or Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. So the first part of this reference refers to Isaiah 53. Now get this. The second part of this reference refers to Isaiah chapter 6. So you have the first part of the book and the second part of the book both attributed to Isaiah. So these people that come up with the argument, two different authors and so on and so forth, I don't think they have much to, uh, to stand on, and yet it's very prominent, the argument that is made. I want to give you one more passage of Scripture in the book of Acts chapter twenty, uh, chapter 8, verse 26. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. And we won't read the whole of it because we know the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip and he came uh, down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. That's verse 26. The Ethiopian eunuch is spoken of in verse 27. Uh, the Bible tells us that he was reading. And in verse 30, Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Esaias, or Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And it says, The place of the Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb dumb before his shear, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth, and the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet? This, of himself or of some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Also, this passage was taken from Isaiah chapter 53. So, uh, just with these few verses, uh, we could certainly say that uh, the prophet Isaiah wrote both the first part of the book, which we had in uh, Isaiah chapter 6 referred to, the second part of the book, or the last part, we should say, of the book of Isaiah, because we find many references to that section of the book. Now then, with that much introduction, I just wanted to mention a few things, because if you read the introduction to most of your commentaries on the book of Isaiah, the first thing they deal with is this big, complicated situation of how many different people could have written the book of Isaiah. And yet when you find the internal evidence, you find there's no one that, that would say that it's written by anyone other than Isaiah, the son of Amos. So, having said that, let's get into the meat of the message. In Isaiah chapter 40, and this is the last section of the book, if you look at this 40th chapter, the first verse has comfort for God's people. Verses 3 through 5 have the voice in the wilderness, and this will refer to John the Baptist. We'll find the references to that. Verses 6 through 8, we'll find the prophet's message. And then verses 9 through 11, you'll find uh, the message to Zion. And verses 12 through 26, the the supremacy of Jehovah. 
In verses 27 through 31, comfort for Jacob and Israel. And this will only be fully realized in the future kingdom when the Isaiah uh, the prophecies of Isaiah are fulfilled in the kingdom that is yet to come. So, let's look at it verse by verse. As you look at this first part, it says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Now, we'll just take it verse by verse. The repetition of the word comfort is meant to express a sense of urgency, and but not that people just receive God's comfort in their distressful situation but rather that comfort here is meant to bring one from a situation of sorrow to a place of joy. And when God speaks comfort, what He wants to do is not only to bring us out of a situation of sorrow or circumstances of life that have to to do with much sorrow in our lives, but He wants to bring us into a place of joy. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. And then the second verse says, Speak ye comfortably, to Jerusalem. What does he mean? Speak comfortably. If you have a marginal reference, it's to the heart or upon the heart. In other words, the comfort will come from God's heart. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. And uh, it means the comfort will come from above. The comfort we receive is from above. It's not from this earth. You know, the Bible, Paul speaks of, of that God is the God of all comfort. He says that, and he also says that we may be able to comfort them that are in any trouble. Now listen, by the same comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. So we can only be a comfort to other people and bring peace or joy or ease of their burden as God brings it to us. In other words, a preacher is only able to do what God will do for him. Uh, if, I, if I can be of any blessing to you, it's only as God permits me to be a blessing and helps me to be one or Brother Randy, or whoever. And uh, if we're able to comfort anyone, it's, as Paul says, with the same comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her. Now look, that her warfare is accomplished. In other words, this battle, this uh, opposition, and this conflict with uh, Assyria... God had promised He would deliver her, Jerusalem, from that conflict. That her iniquity is pardoned. In other words, Isaiah had just told Hezekiah that Jerusalem would be be destroyed and the population deported. And from its ruined state, God is about to rebuild it. And this verse also speaks of the people of Jerusalem and their restoration. Then he uses that word pardon. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double of all her sins. Think of receiving of the Lord's hand double for all our sins. First, God had pardoned them. God had forgiven them. This is a covenant expression of my people that he has forgiven. And then the exile is regarded as a separation or divorce between God and his people. You know, Jeremiah speaks of in chapter 3 verse 8 of, the, of God's people being separated. And then the nation's sin and resulting covenant, the curses are acknowledged in Daniel and in Daniel's prayer, which climaxes by asking God to forgive. So God is going to reinstate his faithless people. And so God is going to reinstate those that are backslidden or away from him. But notice it says that for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, this may possibly allude to the two major deportations of Jerusalem. Remember, 
598-97 B.C. and 587, about a hundred years difference. And in verse 3 it says, by the way, before we get off that double all her sins, she had paid dearly for her sins. And double is what damages they owed plus, or in other words, they had paid what they owed plus the damages. And back in the Old Testament we'll find that there is double that is exacted from people who commit crimes. Let me read in the book of Exodus chapter 22. Let's read verse 1. And you see how you have to pay for sins with interest. You don't just pay for sins equal. Sometimes you pay for sins with interest. And Israel had dearly paid for her sins. Now if you look in Exodus chapter 22 verse 1, it says, If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, He shall restore five oxen for an ox. (laughs) That's more than double, isn't it? And then it says, and four sheep for a sheep. You remember we we read of Zacchaeus, you know? He says, Zacchaeus says, if I have taken anything from any man uh, falsely, I will restore him fourfold. He's getting off light. Suppose he had stolen an ox instead of a sheep. He owed fivefold, didn't he? But at least he was repentant, wasn't he? And willing to restore fourfold. But you read on down in the book of Exodus, chapter 22 and verse 7, If a man shall deliver unto his neighbor money or stuff to keep, and it be stolen out of the man's house, if the thief be found, let him pay double. So, some instances you pay double, some fourfold, some fivefold. And then down in verse 9, it says, For all manner of trespass, whether it be for an ox, for ass, for sheep, for raiment, or for any manner of lost thing, which another challenges to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whom the judges shall condemn, he shall pay double unto his neighbor. In other words, the situation comes up before the judges. They would determine that the one that was in the wrong would have to pay double. And so this passage in Isaiah chapter 40, concerning God's people, it says, For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. We know that the Bible teaches that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now then, verses 3 through 11 have to do, and especially 3 through 5, uh, have to do with the voice of him that cried in the wilderness. But then if you want to expand it to 3 through 11, the first and second uh, coming of Christ are blended together. The first coming of Christ is seen when uh, we have the voice of the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, uh, in verse 3. It says, The voice of him that prepare, uh, that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be ex- exalted, and every mountain and every hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall sit together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So verses 3 through 5, you have the one that's crying in the wilderness. The fulfillment of someone crying in the wilderness is found in Matthew 3, verses 1 through 3. You remember when it announces John the Baptist. And the wilderness alludes to Israel's journey from Egypt. Remember they had the journey from Egypt to Canaan with God as their leader. And so they had Moses to lead them, but God was their real leader. And then, of course, it was only Joshua that brought them into the land itself. And by the way, it also points to the moral wilderness which God will lead His people through when He restores them from captivity in Babylon. Later on, they were taken into Babylonian captivity 
And it speaks of God restoring them from captivity, leading them through the wilderness, this moral wilderness of, of backsliding and being carried away captive. And this voice refers to John the Baptist, who preached in order to prepare the way of the Lord and Messiah, Jesus Christ. Remember, it's, it says of John, he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And it even quotes these very same things. Uh, Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In verse 3. You find that spoken of in the New Testament. And then we might find also that John was figurative of Elijah, the forerunner of Christ. He was, or the one that was to come before Christ at the second coming. Elijah. In Matthew chapter 17 and verse 11, it says this, Matthew 17 verse 11, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not. Now look, Jesus said, now what did he say? Jesus answered and said, Elias truly shall come first. They said in verse 10, and his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? They, he asked, they asked the question. And he says, Well, truly, he shall come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias has come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and verse 17, it says, And he, speaking of John the Baptist, shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. In the spirit and power of Elijah. So that when John the Baptist came on the scene, he was not Elijah, personally, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Jesus says, This is the Elijah that was for to come. To prepare the way for the Lord. He says if you can receive it and understand it. And here it says in the spirit and power of Elijah. He shall go before him. This is Luke 1 verse 17. He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And he prepared the way for the Lord. And when uh, John the Baptist got, uh, went off the scene. And Jesus picked up the same theme. You know what did John the Baptist preach? Repent for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's exactly what Jesus began to preach. When when. He decreased and Christ increased. Well, he picked up the same message. So he prepared the way for the Lord. And by the way, he prepared the, a people for the Lord. And so these prepared people became a part of the Lord's congregation. And so that's where, where did the Baptist start? With John the Baptist. Continued with Christ. And it was built upon the foundation of, of John the Baptist. Starting the... the Way and setting the uh, laying the foundation and Jesus the true foundation and he continued with the same message and he continued doing the same baptizing. It says Jesus himself baptized many disciples. You know, though he himself baptized not, but his disciples. So he committed. He did the work. Only committed it to them. And if it was committed to them, it was Christ doing it. You know, if a builder goes out here, a contractor goes out here, and he builds a house. You'll say, 
uh, so-and-so and you'll name the contractor that built your house, right? You say, so-and-so, and you name that contractor. Say, he built my house. Brother Jim had one recently, and he knows that a contractor built his house. But look at all the guys that worked on it. Well, he didn't just build it. The others did it too, didn't they? But he's, he has the responsibility and the authority and the recognition as the builder. Well, you know, Jesus baptized not, but his disciples. It says Jesus baptized more disciples than John. When they heard that Jesus baptized more disciples than John, you find that in John chapter 4. Let's see if we can find it. I know it's in the Bible. John chapter 4, look at that. Let's see. See what it says. It says, When therefore the Lord knew how that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made, you make disciples first, and baptized more disciples than John, and then it explains it in verse 2, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. So he committed this work to his disciples. Some say that means he baptized his disciples. I don't think so. But anyway, uh, what we're saying here is that John the Baptist is the one that was preparing the way for the Lord. You find it borne out in so many, many passages of Scripture. But John himself denies that he was Elijah himself. In John chapter 1, let me give you this. John chapter 1, verse 21. I want you to see this verse. John chapter 1, in verse 21. Notice what it says here. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? They asked John the Baptist. Art thou Elias or Elijah? And he said, I am not. So he denies that he is Elijah personally. And yet Jesus contributes to him the spirit and power of Elijah and the work of Elijah and the forerunner of himself. So you see the two things have to be in consideration. He was not the personal Elijah that should come before the coming second coming of Christ. But he was the one that was the forerunner that was to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he says that's why Jesus said that he has come already. Well we could get into a lot of preaching here, but I don't know if we'll have time. I wanted to finish this whole chapter and I haven't got three verses. But anyway, let me tell you something. Uh, the the preaching we could get into is this, that you know someone says, well, uh, you know, Enoch and Elijah are supposed to come before the Lord comes. Well, where do you get that anyway? I really don't know where people get that. Because the Bible speaks of uh, Moses and Elijah with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you remember, there appeared with him Moses and Elijah. And uh, Peter says, well... That's in Matthew 17, verse 3. Behold, they appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. This is when Jesus was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun. His raiment was white as the light. And the Bible says, Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. I guess so. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles. One for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias or Elijah. And then we find in Luke's Gospel chapter 9, that it speaks of, and I won't turn to it, but in, in Mark 9 and Luke 9, you all ho- also have the record of the transfiguration, but in Luke's gospel, I believe it is, you find that it says that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Then you read in Peter's epistles where he says that this, we were with him on the holy mount, and we have not 
spoken unto you cunningly devised fables, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When we when uh, there appeared with him in that holy mount, who was that with him in that holy mount? Moses and Elijah. And what does Peter say about that experience? He says this was a preview when we were privileged to witness the power and coming, he says, of our Lord. Peter refers to that as the power and coming of the Lord. Then when you get over into the book of Revelation, and when you start studying about the two witnesses, and I think you'll find that in the, the 11th chapter of Revelation. I usually have places marked, but I, I'm going to many different places tonight. I don't have these marked, I'll tell you for sure. But it says in, I, in uh, Revelation chapter 11, in verse 3, I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. And he tells of these two special witnesses. In verse 6, he says, These have power. These witnesses have this miraculous power. Now, identify who they are. These have power to shut up heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Who shut up the heavens? Elijah, wasn't it, right? And it says, And have power to... Uh, over waters to turn them to blood. Who is that? Moses. And to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And so the the indication here is that the credentials that these two witnesses have in Revelation chapter 11 are the credentials that belong to two men, uh, special men, Moses and Elijah, definitely. And so we find that... <clears throat> In the, uh, there's a lot could be said about that, and we could preach a whole sermon on that, so we won't do it at this time. But I just wanted to identify the fact that this man that was spoken of here in Isaiah's prophecy, though it referred to John the Baptist coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, yet it was, he did not claim to be Elijah personally. And by the way, let me just say something about these two in Revelation chapter 11. Neither does it demand that there is an actual personal appearance of Moses and Elijah even there. But it demands that there will be two witnesses and they will have the same credentials. Now then, if God chooses to send back Moses from the dead and Elijah from glory back to this earth to be those two witnesses, that's entirely up to him. I'm not going to argue with him. That's his business, isn't it? But he doesn't have to to be true with the Scripture because Concerning this first part of Elijah coming, uh, Jesus refers to John the Baptist as the Elijah which was for to come. So he was not John. He was uh, he was not Elijah that was to come, but he was in the spirit and power of Elijah. The two witnesses that are prophesied before his second coming would they essentially, if the one that was promised before his first coming was not a personal appearance of Elijah? Why would it be necessary that the one that is promised for his second coming be definitely a personal appearance of the prophet Elijah? Now then, as I say, some argue that it's going to be. And if it is, that's fine. But on the other hand, the scripture does not demand a personal appearance of them in that sense of the word. If you could qualify John the Baptist... As that Elijah that was to come, and Jesus did that himself. I didn't do it. Jesus qualified him as that one who was to come before his coming. Then why? He says he's come already, if you will receive it. So then why should we require more 
than Jesus required more to identify one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. But on the other hand, as I say, in the Lord is able to send both Moses and Elijah back before his coming if he so desires. How did I get off on that? Anyway, here we are. Uh, back to, to uh, verse 3, 4, and 5. So, uh, by the way, Malachi refers to the coming. In the book of Malachi, he refers to, to John the Baptist. And this is in the context, so I'm not chasing rabbits now. I just want to give you this. I'll let you know before we get. In chapter 4, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now look, he says he's going to send Elijah the prophet. But then in verse 6 he says, And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children. So this has to do with the John the Baptist, doesn't it? And, and it says, And the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So the Old Testament, Malachi, that's the last verse of the Old Testament ends with a curse. And the New Testament ends with a blessing, doesn't it? The coming of the Lord. I like the way the New Testament ends better, don't you? And so we, we're living in under the New Testament covenant of grace instead of the curse of the law of the Old Testament. So, anyway, we could go on. Let me skip down a little bit here and get to verse 4. It says, Every valley, back in our text, hold your place in Isaiah 40 where we're studying. It says, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 4, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, the rough places plain. See, in order to prepare this highway for God, all obstacles had to be removed in the ancient Babylon, and triumphal avenues and highways were construed, or constructed, I should say, exclusively for the procession of a king or a statute of deity. And similarly, the way is being prepared for the Lord's triumphal entry, return to Jerusalem to reign over His covenant people. The, everything is being prepared. And John also removes all obstacles, sin and self-confidence and pride and national privileges and hypocrisy, so that men would be ready for the coming of the Messiah the first time. So he was preparing for that, coming the first time. Verse 5 says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Now the glory of the Lord will be revealed with the second advent of Christ. You see how these verses, and we could include verses 3 through 11 in our text there in Isaiah 40, uh, as referring to the first and second coming of Christ and blending them together because when it says the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, well, that didn't happen at the first coming of Christ. The way was prepared. People were saved. But when the, when Jesus comes again the second time, the glory of the Lord will be revealed at His second advent. And then also, uh, Israel will be saved. But in the meantime, the salvation of God is offered to the Gentiles as they hear the gospel and believe on it, not just to the Jewish nation and people. We come down to verse 6. It says, The voice said, Cry. And he said, What shall I cry? Here's the message, the prophet's message. What shall I cry? And he says, All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. What is all flesh? They're like grass. This has kind of a universal ring to it, doesn't it? 
going beyond the physical Israel. It has to do with man in general and mankind in general. It says all flesh is grass. And all the goodliness thereof is the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. Verse 8 says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Look at the difference. Man is frail. He's like grass that is cut down, like the flower of the field. So it does have a universal ring. We know death comes to one and all. But uh, Peter used this message as far as the good news of Christ coming and the gospel that comes through him. Let me read in the book of First Peter chapter 1. Let me read First Peter chapter 1 beginning with verse uh, 22. <clears throat> it says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Here you have it again. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Now, he quotes Isaiah, look. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The same passage we're reading. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. Now, look. Here's what Peter adds to that. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. That the word of the gospel is preached by this word that shall abide forever. And Isaiah says in verse 8, But the word of our God shall stand forever. God has spoken comfort and comfort, and when God speaks, things happen. And he also has spoken by the prophets before, and those messages stand. We have verse 9 says, Hold your place, Isaiah 40, verse 9. It says, O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. What's he saying? Bringing good tidings. Now in the Septuagint, good tidings derived, derives from the root evangel, which means good news. This announcement is what was to comfort the people in captivity. And here that good news is that God is coming back uh, to his temple. But we can see how Paul took this same, these same ideas by the direction of the Holy Spirit, and recognize the ultimate fulfillment in the good news that of Jesus, Jesus Christ, and the message that's proclaimed through Him. In Romans chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, it's chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. It says, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Esau saith, uh, saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So he refers to Isaiah the prophet. So he took this same message and says it's the good news of the gospel in the book of Romans chapter 10 that Isaiah was proclaiming as good news back here. Read it in chapter 40, verse 9. Isaiah 40, verse 9. O Zion, that bringest good tidings. And it's not only good tidings for Israel of old, and it's good tidings for Israel later, but it's good tidings for all people that is spoken of in the gospel. 
And verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work, uh, his work before him. With a strong hand. It was by God's strong hand that deliverance from Egypt was achieved. Remember how God spoke? They were delivered by blood and by what? Power. Isn't that true of our deliverance? We were delivered by the blood of Christ, redemption through His blood, and by the power of God that made us a new creature when that blood of Christ was applied by faith. And He made it, it we were delivered by power from the possession of sin, or from the, from the bondage of sin. So we were not only delivered by the blood of Christ, but we were delivered by the power of God. And it says His arm, notice, His strong hand and His arm. That's what it says concerning uh, God's people and their deliverance from Egypt and how it was achieved by His strong arm and His hand. These are synonyms with God's salvation. He shall, look at verse 11. We'll try to get verse 11 then close. He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with His arm and carry them in His bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. The Lord is going to be the deliverer, and the Lord is our deliverer. He's going to be the deliverer for Israel, but He's going to be seen as the shepherd. Look, He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. The shepherd is tender and kind. Can you imagine a shepherd being cruel to sheep? But He's tender and kind. Because sheep are dumb. Sheep are helpless. They just cannot do a thing for themselves. They have to be cared for. They have to be led into in green pastures and to, by the still waters. And the Lord deals with His people. It says that we are His people, the sheep of His pasture. We're the sheep of His pasture. In John chapter 10, the Lord speaks of His sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, I lay down my life that I may... Take it up again. He says, I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. And he voluntarily and willingly, think of this. Jesus wasn't forced to. But he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. He willingly did that. He says, I have power. I have the power. I have the choice. I have power to do it. To lay it down. And I have power to take it up again. Be resurrected. He says, this commandment have I received from my Father. He is... Certainly the one that sacrifices himself. And he did for you and I. How much do we owe the Lord? How much do we owe Jesus? Everything. Because he did everything for us. We're bought with a price. We don't even belong to ourselves. You're not your own. He paid for us by his shed blood on the cross of Calvary. It says, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And the shepherd is not only tender and kind, he's full of love and compassion. He is considerate and reasonable. Reasonable. You know, I like men that are reasonable. I just, it, it kind of bugs me to deal with men that are unreasonable. Because, you know, you've got to think about things. Some people are just unreasonable. Uh, Paul said he was thankful that, and he prayed that he would be delivered from unreasonable men. Remember in the epistles? There's a scripture to that reference. And God Himself is reasonable. And if He can set the pattern, if God would so condescend, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, He says, come now. What does God say? He says, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. 
Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. I mean, that sounds reasonable if he's going to do that. And he says, though they be red like crimson. That, you know that means that scarlet, one thing. But red like crimson, that means like double dyed red. D-Y-E-D. Double dyed red. In other words, we're double dyed sinners. We're not only red and sinners in that way, but we're sinners twice. We're sinners by nature and by choice. And though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And even though we're double dyed sinners, we can be cleansed and as white as wool. And so thank the Lord that He has that uh, power to make us. But He is reasonable. And he is filled with knowledge and with wisdom. A good shepherd is filled with knowledge and wisdom. And he's able to lead and he's able to guide and he's able to feed. And he's able to rule by instruction and by example. He leads his sheep. He leadeth me. He doesn't drive sheep. You know, the devil is the one that drives. But the shepherd is the one that leads. By the way, that's a good uh, example for pastors, isn't it? I've seen pastors that try to drive people. I'd a whole lot rather try to lead people than to drive them. You know, I never tell you what to do. I tell you what the Bible says. Do you find me very often telling you, you've got to do this, you've got to do that? I know I'm not to be a dictator, certainly not. But I mean, you know, even so, I'd like for you to help. And as God leads you, whatever He lays upon your heart, and it's your service and your talent and your ability, find a place and fill it. And, and you know, that's great when you do it that way, on a voluntary basis. I don't care for preachers that are dictators. God's people are not to be dictated. Uh, Paul, I mean, Peter speaks of... What did I say I was going to do? Uh, in First Peter chapter 5, he says this, verse 2, he said, well, verse 1, he says, The elders which are among you, I exhort, who also am an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory that, is, that shall be revealed. What does Peter say? Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Then it says, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And it says, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So there's the instruction.